the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation shook the religious unity which had bound European countries together for centuries. In Britain, the Tudor Reformation, begun by Henry VIII, set in train decades of political and social instability, but was never completed. Instead, the Protestant Church of England still reflected many Catholic traditions and rituals, leaving many Protestants dissatisfied and hungry for further reforms, while a suppressed and secret minority of Catholic worshippers were marginalised and persecuted. This was a perfect recipe for conflict, which was made more likely by the bloody Thirty Years' War that swept across the European continent from 1618 to 1648, when the newly elected Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II attempted to impose Roman Catholicism on his domains in the face of the revolt of Protestant German states and the United Netherlands and Sweden. It was against this backdrop that the British Civil Wars began in 1642. In this programme, distinguished historian Anne Hughes, Emerita Professor at Keele University, talks to publisher Mike Gibbs about the Reformation and the resulting fragmentation of Europe. As far as we know, everyone in 16th and 17th century England believed in the truth of the Christian religion. Christian religion was their way of understanding how the world worked and their own place in that world. This is fundamental to our understanding of the role of religion in the British civil wars. People believed that there was a Christian God who was intimately and personally involved in everything that God's providence governed everything that happened in the world. I can give you two examples from people who I'll be talking about later in these podcasts. Ralph Jocelyn, an Essex clergyman, wrote in his diary in September 1644 that he wrote to Sudbury. God was good to me outwards and homewards. When I came home, my good friend Mr Harlackenden sold one bag of hops for me, wherein I was advantaged one pound fifteen shillings. This was God's good providence. For Ralph Jocelyn, God was watching over him as he rode on a journey and as he made money out of selling his hops. Everything that happened to him was governed by God's power and God's interest in the world. A more significant example is from Oliver Cromwell's letter to the Parliament after his victory at the Battle of Naseby in June 1645. This is none other than the hand of God. And to him alone belongs the glory, wherein none are to share with him. I attribute all to God, and would rather perish than assume anything to myself, which is an honest and thriving way. God, therefore, was with the parliamentary armies in their triumphs over the king. But religion was not a unifying force in Britain at this time. In fact, religion seems to have been a, a source of dissension and conflict throughout Europe and this contributed significantly to widespread political instability. It was assumed that religious unity, conformity to one version of Christian religion, was essential to both social harmony and political stability. Religion encouraged 
good relationships amongst your neighbours, and it encouraged obedience to authority. But the crucial trouble for early modern Europe, and of course early modern England and the rest of the British Isles, was that from the early 16th century, people did not agree as to what the true Christian religion was or should be. Historians now talk of the 17th century as a post-Reformation era, a period dealing with the aftermath of the breakup of European Christian unity with the Protestant Reformation. Before the Reformation, in theory and to a large extent in practice, there was one unified Catholic church where the Pope at the head of that church ruled over Christendom, at least in Western Europe. In 1517, however, Martin Luther, a German monk, challenged the power of the Pope and the central doctrines of the Catholic Church. Very quickly, he gained support in many German states, in Scandinavia, and to some extent, as we shall see, in the British Isles. So that instead, after Luther and his successors, instead of a broadly united Christendom, you had all over Europe profound divisions between Catholics and Protestants, and, of course, increasingly, divisions between different sorts of Protestants. Could you briefly compare and contrast Catholicism with Protestantism for us? How did they differ? The Catholic Church was an international hierarchical organisation, with the Pope at its head and a series of rules and traditions that had been worked out by the Pope and councils of the church over time. Catholics believed that true religion, how you should behave and what you should believe, was governed by the word of God as revealed in the Bible, the scriptures, but also by the rules and traditions of this church. In this church, in the Catholic church, priests were distinguished very sharply from lay people. Priests had particular sacred functions and were devoted to God, so they did not marry and they carried out sermons in Latin, which most people could not understand. Particularly important was the Catholic Mass. Priests performed a sacred ritual, the mystery of the Mass, which reenacted Christ's Last Supper before his crucifixion. Catholics believed that Christ's blood and body was really present at the climax of the Mass. If you're not Catholic, if you're not religious, this is difficult to understand. But the divisions between Catholics and Protestants about what was happening in what was this Holy Communion, reuniting Christians of this time with Christ and his apostles, his followers in the Bible, really, really mattered to people. Also in Catholic worship, it was a multimedia, colourful, active experience. Catholics believed that if you were unable to read the Bible, you could nonetheless lead a full Christian life through attending the Mass, through looking at pictures and shrines 
and statues in elaborate, vividly coloured churches. You could go on pilgrimages to particular holy places. You could pray to particular saints. You could pray to St Lucy if you had a bad eye. You could pray to St Christopher if you were going on a dangerous journey. You could pray to saints, to Mary, the mother of God, to help you in the difficulties you faced in life. And you got to heaven through good works, through leading a godly religious life, to being kind and fair to your neighbours, but also through participation in the rituals of the church. Going to Mass, going on a pilgrimage was one of the ways you could get to heaven or in technical terms, you could achieve salvation. And how did Protestants differ from Catholics in their beliefs and practices? Protestants thought this was over-elaborate. Protestants simplified worship and simplified the ways in which you achieved salvation. For Protestants in the first place, only the scripture, only the word of God as written in the Bible, particularly the word of God by Christ himself in the Gospels and by his followers who spread Christianity after his death, was the true guide to how you should be religious and how you should organise your church. One obvious result of this was that the Bible and religious sermons should be available in English or French or German rather than only available in Latin. You needed to be able to understand the scriptures either directly or through the help of educated clergy in order to benefit from Christ's sacrifice and to gain salvation. So they believed in only the scriptures as a guide to being religious and as a guide to organising the church. The clergy were important in Protestantism as preachers of the word of God and as interpreting the Bible to people who perhaps were less well educated or had less time to devote to it. They were not, though, distinctly different sorts of people. Very rarely were they called priests. They were called clerics or ministers or sometimes pastors, shepherds of their flock. Protestant clergy married, and that's a significant sign that they were intended to be like everybody else, but better and more able to interpret the scriptures. Protestants believed that God was all-powerful, and without the help of God and Christ, humans were irredeemably sinful. So they believed in salvation by faith alone. You got to heaven because God's mercy had been directed towards you. You could not earn salvation. This again is difficult to understand, I think, because most of us think if you lead a decent enough life, you'll get to heaven if we believe in heaven. But early modern Protestants believed that only through faith in God and laying your claim to Christ's sacrifice could you get to heaven. Christ had died to save sinful humanity or some of sinful humanity, as I'll say in a moment. The Catholic stress on earning salvation by things you did was regarded as presumption. It was an arrogant challenge by sinful people to the power of God and God was all-powerful. 
And there was a, a more radical group of Protestants, the Calvinists. Who were they and what role did they play in the British civil wars? At its most rigid, this way of getting to heaven was associated with the French Swiss theologian John Calvin. So it's called Calvinism. Calvinists believed that a minority had been predestined, chosen from the beginning of time, not out of their own merit, but out of God's mercy to go to heaven, and that probably most of the population was damned. This did not mean that you did not do good works, that you should not lead a godly, pious life, but you did that as a result of being saved, not to earn it. Earning salvation, the belief that humans could earn their own salvation, was, as I've said, arrogant and presumptuous. English Calvinists stressed that you would have some sense through leading a godly activist life, being busy in your community, and through meditating on the scriptures, going to sermons, an inner assurance, an important term, that you were one of God's elect. And many people, like Oliver Cromwell is a very good example, struggled with this at many times, but came to have an assurance that they were almost certainly, you could never be finally sure, but almost certainly one of God's elect saints and that God had purposes for you in the world. And these Calvinist ideas, this belief that this was the true religion, affected how you were in the world, but also affected you as individuals, is going to be important throughout the Civil War. Until the reign of Henry VIII, Catholicism was the universal religion of the British Isles. How did the Reformation change all that? In England, the Reformation began from the top. Henry VIII became unhappy with his marriage to Catherine of Aragon in the 1630s, which had not given him a son. He fell in love with Anne Boleyn, and he wanted a divorce, which the Pope wouldn't give him. And although there were small groups of people in England who were interested in Lutheranism and the new learning, the new religion, it was mainly these political, personal issues that drove the Reformation in England in the 1530s. Henry VIII challenged and rejected the power of the Pope over the English church, and the English monarch became the head of the Church of England, which is going to be very important for the 17th century. The monasteries where people, nuns and monks, devoted themselves to a religious life were dissolved because that did not suit a sort of Protestant notion of religion being active in the world. But mostly Henry VIII, Henry VIII's government retained Catholic doctrine and Catholic worship. It was not a thoroughgoing Protestant reformation, though the way it happened was to have momentous consequences. Actually making people Protestants in terms of how they understood Christianity and how they worshipped in the churches began under Henry VIII's son, Edward VI, 
And Edward VI himself, a minor king, a young boy, and his advisers were zealous Protestants. And many of the moves to get rid of something like the mass to make churches whitewashed arenas for preaching rather than colourful buildings full of shrines and pictures began under Edward VI. He died very young and the whole thing was reversed under Henry VIII's Catholic daughter, Queen Mary I. By this time, there were many committed Protestants. Many, as you'll know, suffered martyrdom under Catholic Mary, were burned from their beliefs. Others were exiled to the continent, which was important because they picked up their more zealous Protestant beliefs. Many others just lay low and hoped for better times. So it's only with the accession of Queen Elizabeth in 1558 where there was a real start of making England a Protestant country in terms of how the church operated and what people were encouraged to believe in. So I want to make two points. The first point is that the Reformation is still relatively new by the 17th century in England. It's not something that's over and done with. Secondly, religion is inevitably tangled up with politics, with issues of power. It's particularly important in England where the monarch is the head of the church. Monarch's duty is to protect the church. All religious teaching tells you you should obey authority, but there's an element there of conditionality. What do you do if you don't think the monarch is protecting true religion. Understand the Reformation affected the three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland differently. What were the important implications of this in the decades leading up to the Civil War? It's crucial for what happens in England in the 1640s that from 1603, when James VI of Scotland succeeds Elizabeth as James I also of England, that English monarchs are British and Irish monarchs. They rule over three kingdoms. And in our discussion of religion, the crucial point is that the Reformation has affected each kingdom differently. Very simply, the Reformation failed in Ireland. The English were a colonising power. They weren't very good or very interested in engaging with the native Gaelic-Irish-speaking population. So most of that Gaelic population and most of the old English Norman conquerors who'd been there for centuries remained Catholic right through to the 17th century, to the 1640s. Scotland had the most complete reformation. The leader of the Scottish Reformation, John Knox, had been exiled in Germany and then in Calvin's Geneva under Queen Mary. And he believed that the Genevan regime established by John Calvin was, after the apostles, after Christ's immediate followers, was the best church that had ever been in the world. And he built or contributed to, led a Scottish Reformation that came to see itself as the rival to Geneva, as one of the best reformed churches in the world. Religious reformation in Scotland 
was done in opposition, not quite to the crown, but to the French regent and mother of the infant monarch who was Mary, Queen of Scots, who was to remain a Catholic. It was established as a Presbyterian church. And I'm going to explain Presbyterianism because it becomes an issue in England too in the 1640s. Presbyterianism was a more participatory, decentralised structure where the church was governed by committees of ministers and laity in the parishes who sent representatives to committees at a regional and national level. And it is, of course, important that if you are King Charles I or King James I, you are head of the church in England, you are not head of the church in Scotland. You have a responsibility to defend that church, but as some of the more aggressive Presbyterian ministers in Scotland said, as far as religion goes, you're just James Stuart or Charles Stuart. The English church remained hierarchical, there were parish ministers, parish clergy. They were governed by bishops and bishops in turn in the hierarchy were governed by the two archbishops of Canterbury and York. So organisation, the church is not really reformed. It looks very like the pre-Catholic church as far as you don't have monks and nuns, but as it operates in parishes, which is how the church is organised, it looks very much as it had done in the 15th century. And the church courts, separate from secular authority, still operated to control marriage, how you made your will, and to enforce church attendance. So the officers of the church, but also the courts that ran the church, remained as they had done in Catholic England. But for some in England, the Reformation hadn't gone far enough. In England, you get people who think the church needs further Reformation. And these are these people who we call Puritans. Puritans are usually described, as someone said in the 1560s, as the hotter sort of Protestants. It's a loose definition, but it gives you the sort of flavour of them. They believed that the church still had too many marks of popery. The Puritans, therefore, believed strongly in Calvinist predestinarian doctrine, I've explained. They believed in purified worship, none of this kneeling, bowing, signing the cross, and that preaching the word was crucial. They were strenuous and activist at an individual level, attending sermons, reflecting on their own state of sinfulness, meditation, seeking assurance of salvation. But they're also active reformers improvers in their communities, concerned about too many people being in the pub, concerned about immoral sexual behaviour, concerned about swearing and so on. They had a strong sense of themselves as being part of a godly community, doing God's work in the world and on themselves. And they usually, perhaps when they weren't being proud of being called Puritans, described themselves as the godly. Puritans are the most zealous opponents of Catholicism, the most concerned anti-papists, 
concerned with being opposed to popery. For Puritans, Catholicism is not an alternative version of Christianity. It is the opposite of true religion. Zealous Protestants believed the Pope was Antichrist and the Papists are plotters. They act in a secret and underhand way. And in the early 1640s in England, a sense that there is a popish plot to undermine true religion and the laws and government of England is crucial to the divisions that are going to lead to civil war. Professor Hughes, thank you very much indeed. We hope you've enjoyed this programme. In the other episodes in this three-part series, Professor Hughes explains how Charles I tried and failed to impose religious conformity across England and Scotland, with disastrous consequences that ended in civil war, and how Parliament's subsequent attempts to achieve the same goal proved abortive and resulted in the failure of the Republic. All these programmes are available on our website, worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk, or wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To learn more about these and many other fascinating programmes by leading academic historians, subscribe now to our regular newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down. Just click the link on the website or in the programme notes. 